Hi folks, Salma Karashi here for Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Podcast. So today we're nailing down two firsts. We have our first traveling episode and also the first time we're doing a two-part series here. So this in the next episode, we'll focus on a recent workshop co-hosted by our own Fidel Santa Maria and Horacio Rothstein of NJIT Rutgers Newark. The meeting happened over four days this past February in downtown San Antonio and united a diverse international work group of researchers to define the present and future frameworks in theoretical neuroscience. In today's part one episode, you'll hear me talking to a panel of voices mostly familiar to longtime listeners to establish the goals of the workshop on its very first day as the group got to work. In the follow-up part two episode, Fidel and Horacio report on the main points of discussion that resulted from the meeting. So have a listen, and as always, apologies for the rough sound. Okay, today we're at uh, day one of the present and future frameworks in theoretical neuroscience workshop in muggy downtown San Antonio. Uh, this workshop has been organized by Horacio Rothstein of NJIT and our own Fidel Santa Maria through um, funding provided by the NSF. They've assembled a group of theoretically driven experimentalists and experimentally informed theorists, since I'm just playing as theorists as well, uh, to uh, engage in identifying the priorities for developing theoretical neuroscience for its own sake and in a manner that aligns with the neurotechnologies and data seeded by the Brain Initiative. So I'm going to let Fidel and Horacio kind of describe in their own words what their goals for this meeting are and then allow them to introduce the panel that we've got here to have our discussion. So from what I understand, though, our plan is to do a series here. We're going to do an initial podcast uh, that lays out some of the basic ideas, and then we're going to return in a couple of days after this work group has done its business, and then we're going to reconvene and talk things over again. So Fidel and Horacio, who wants to take it first and describe? They're pointing at each other. <laughs> Um, okay, well, um, okay, so, um, so as, as probably everyone knows, uh, the Brain Initiative uh, w is wanted to build neurotechnologies first, and then we're going to get all this data. What are we going to do with this data? Uh, what kind of theories are going to be needed to be developed to make the, the most of this, of this data for? To understand the brain, um, human brains in health and disease, or or how to uh, maximize the information that we get from one organism and move it to to understand um, uh, evolutionary processes in other organisms, um, and for that we we assemble the people that that we think uh, uh, that wanted to come and <laughs> had the time, and 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 we think that they can inform this discussion. Um, I'm just going to say that. Yeah, yeah. The, the main idea is that uh, we do not have uh, at present uh, models that can explain the data that is coming. We do probably don't have the concept of uh, what a uh, good model is, a framework. We call it frameworks instead of models. Instead of models, sorry, because uh, it is a set of ideas rather than just uh, equations or, or functions mm -hmm. as we usually use in mathematics or in physics. Uh, and we want to discuss that. We want to come up as a community with uh, with ideas that uh, and conclusions that can be provided to, to the larger community, can be discussed by the larger community, and can eventually be sent to the funding agencies. Uh, what we wanted is this discussion to happen uh, in the community at large, as opposed to uh, only at the funding agencies or in small groups. So we want the discussion to be uh, to involve. Uh, ideally, all the people that are uh, participating in, in this type of research. We cannot do that, so 
we brought a small group of people here to discuss that. But by producing uh, white papers, by producing, uh, by uh, this, putting these ideas in, in, in words and eventually publishing it with the input of other people that are not here present, we believe that we are going to contribute to the spreading of ideas, collecting new ideas, and eventually making this better and create this framework that will allow us to, to, to move forward. Super. So from the subgroup, we've actually got a sub-subgroup assembled here, uh, all mic'd up and ready to have a discussion. Guys, can you introduce yourselves? We've got some friends of the podcast. Let's start with you, Veronica Alvarez. Okay, so my name is Veronica Alvarez. I'm an investigator at the intramural program of NIH, and my laboratory studies neurobiology of addiction, basically understanding the synaptic mechanisms that drive the behavioral response to drugs of abuse. My name is Tatiana Engel. I'm assistant professor at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in New York. Um, my lab is computational, and we are interested in understanding mechanisms underlying cognitive functions, such as attention, working memory, and decision-making. And we collaborate with experimentalists who collect data from animals engaged in this task, and we build mechanistic models, as well as models of the population activity in these recordings, with a goal to understand what patterns of neural activity, how they arise, and how they lead to behavior. I'm Dave Reddish. Uh, I'm a professor at the University of Minnesota in the Department of Neuroscience. Um, my laboratory works on questions of information processing and decision making. What are the, uh, how to, uh, how is information represented within neural systems? How is that information transformed? And then given that we understand a lot of that, how does it actually break down and go wrong, opening up questions of psychiatry, et cetera? So we've been doing a lot of work working across species. How do, how does understanding how mice, rats, and other non-linguistic animals actually understand, uh, make decisions, affect how linguistic animals like humans actually make decisions. Alan. My name is uh, Alain Destex. I am from the CNRS, which is the French correspondent of the NSF. Uh, and I'm working at the Paris-Saclay Institute of Neuroscience, uh, leading a computational neuroscience laboratory. Uh, we work on the thalamocortical system, uh, so the thalamus and cortex, and uh, we are interested in the genesis of brain states and their disorders. So just to start, I, I, you guys have, have, have some organizational principles that you've sort of broken up the meeting based on, and uh, what they fundamentally get at for me is the sense that there really is an agreement about what theory means across this broad group of people. And the, one of the goals here is to really define what is a theory, what is it good for, and what can it deliver. So can you guys, and, and then there, there are these other words like you touched on this Horacio, models and frameworks, and all of this language, uh, it would really help me if you could sort of disentangle some of this. Well, when we, I, I was trained as a mathematician, and, and I'm a computational neuroscientist. When, when I in the past, when I thought about a model, a model is a set of differential equations that produces something that then we eventually be uh, uh, compare with experiments and parameters can be estimated, etc. And it was a very clean picture of what uh, a model is. It's a, set of, it's a mathematical object that we can use. Now, as you start working with uh, other people and with experimentalists, and as uh, you start uh, working with people who do experiments in vivo, 
then you realize that the model is not this nice mathematical object, but it's a collection of objects and it's not uh, well defined. First of all, the information that you get is not complete. Sometimes you get you don't get the complete set of voltage responses with all the components, the time evolution of all the components with time and information about the uncertainties that you have in the system. You get sometimes firing frequencies, right? And from that, you have to infer parameters. So uh, in the end, what you have is a, a collection of uh, parameter sets or a collection of, uh, of sets of differential equations that can produce that behavior that creates classes of models. And that is not so easy to, to manipulate and it's not perhaps so, so useful to, to, to investigate mechanisms. And then you have to think more in terms of, of ideas and try to, to put those things in, in more you know, in broader terms, uh, which is what we are trying to convey with the idea of, of frameworks or, or theories. Uh, yes. I like to think of um, the difference between theory and modeling in the sense that a theory is a set of statable hypotheses. If, if X, then Y, a state of understanding about a system. And then the model is an instantiation of it. Uh, I actually like to point out that in a lot of you know, classical neuroscience, people talked about animal models, right? Those animals don't actually have the disease that they are studying. They have some factor of the disease that they think is theoretically important. And so in the same place where we talk about computational models, we often talked about, talk about a theory that you can then instantiate in a model, maybe as differential equations, but not necessarily as differential equations. But part of the issue is that it's easy to get lost in your head. And so a theory needs to have that model instantiation to test, like an experiment. I think of a model as kind of a computational experiment to see whether it actually, that theory can work. So if a theory says, if I have a set of firing patterns in cell type 1, then under this transformation, that'll give me a set of firing patterns in cell type 2, then I should start from the firing patterns in cell type 1, apply that transformation, and see whether I get the kind of firing patterns I see in cell type 2. And if I don't, that's probably a problem with the theory. The complexity comes because we don't have grand unified theories. And I'll point out that you mentioned physics. Physics doesn't have grand unified theories either. They want one, but they don't have one, right? And even today, you know, gravity and quantum mechanics has not been unified. They're, they, just like us, have theories that apply to specific domains. And so what we end up with is sets of theories, and the theories also have, so I always say this, variability within them, kind of a space. Just like with an experiment, you don't get a number, you get a, a range, right? you have variability. Well, the theories say it can be any of this kind of range, and so you get these families of theories that have similarities to them, but yet asks very specific questions. And I, I think that's what a framework is, that a framework is kind of the sets of questions that theories then instantiate, and then a model is a test of that theory. And that's kind of been the, the layered Workout that the layered set of levels that I, I've at least been been trained to think of it in that way. And then experimentalists also discuss mechanisms, which are a subunit within mechanism. In my view, mechanism is not carefully thought out theory. That what's really going on when they say mechanism is they mean theory, and the problem is because. Experimentalists, and I'm an experimentalist, I run an experimental lab, 
But when you're saying mechanism, what you're really saying is, um, and actually the talk earlier, yeah. the philosophy talk earlier that we had, talked about this very nicely, that a mechanism is in a sense a statement of processes and components. That's a theory, right? The theory says I start from this lower level set of definitions, and if this lower level set of definitions is organized in just this way, it will produce this higher level phenomenon. That's a theoretical statement. And so what one could do is then create a model of those lower level components implying this hypothesized mechanism. And one should see emerging that phenomena at the higher level. And if it doesn't, then your model suggests that your theory, your mechanism, is problematic. So I, I think that when experimentalists talk about mechanism, they're really meaning theory. And it's part of just being, part of theory is being careful about that terminology. But you are using two different concepts of theory, I think. Uh, because one of them is like having a first principle, right? Mm -hmm. They may not have as many beautiful first principles as physicists have. They've had they have probably as many first principles as computational, as theoretical neuroscientists are. But, uh, but there, is, there are first principles from which something theories, I mean, uh, phenomena derives. And then what we call, what I call mechanism is how things work, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and the fact that things may not work or the way I want uh, doesn't mean that the, the first principle is failing. As if, I, if, oh, I, if, if, a, if a motor, if a car motor doesn't work, it's not because you know, the, law of, the laws of thermodynamics are failing. It's just there may be other issues there. So well, it means you, your model doesn't necessarily implement your theory correctly, right? So when you're talking about mechanism, you are in fact talking about first principles. You are talking about having a an earlier definition, a step closer to the first principles to get from point A to point B. And that's, or from, from idea A to idea B. I, I don't think those are different levels of theory. So I'd like to, um, I, want, I want, my comment is going to come tangentially, it's going to grab some of the things that you said, but I wanted to expand it. So uh, for me, one important aspect of a theory is that it has to, um, why it's not just a hypothesis. A hypothesis is something that experimentalists can go and test. I think that's what a hypothesis is. But a theory provides even a larger framework of things that are not yet even all testable, but that then they push experimentalists to like think of ways to kind of answer <laughs> these, um, these hypotheses or answer these questions proposed by the theory. So it really, I think, it's, it's very... Um, important to have these things because they, they push technology and they push experimentalists to do things that otherwise we wouldn't do. And they can do that even when they're not unified. They, you don't need a completely unified theory for, for a theory to be helpful and, and pushing experiments forward. Now, I also uh, perceive that my, my concept of what a model does in there, especially for a computational model, it's somehow a bridge of what you guys have been saying, that computational models have an important role on like linking also that gap that yet cannot be answered experimentally, but then maybe using models, you can start to probe until you figure out then. I mean, at least in our case, so I've been collaborating with Horacio on this model. Um, um, it first came up as an, you know, an exercise um, that just framing 
trying to explain to us here what was the model that we were trying to create was extremely helpful to us because we had to sit down and draw the cartoons and then and finally a lot of things became really clear just to have to translate you know our biological problem to a mathematician but then more importantly when this very simplified um, computational model of our super complex neurons was put into task and uh, work, uh, we discovered that actually some of the principles that we thought that were going to be very important uh, were irrelevant and that, you know, other, other components of the network were critical for creating this. So we actually discovered theoretically a lot of things that now we can go and test. So I think models if, if we have a very good theory that is pushing experimentalists to test things that we, yet we don't know how to test, models can help on that bridge enormously. So David, you said this earlier, that theory is really a process. Yes. And it's this sort of recurrent dialoguing sort of operation. Right. Um, and that's like exactly. a perfect example I mean, of that. And that, I would argue, is the cycle of theory, modeling, and experiment, right? That you have a theory that is saying these are the important questions, this is the way to build the model, these are the parameters you want to put in, and you actually test by instantiating. I think that one of the really mm -hmm. important points that Monica's brought up is that you have to actually instantiate this stuff, and you have to Thinking hard about it is not good enough because it's too easy to just get lost in your own head. And that actually building a model and testing, it's like a little mini experiment. It's a computational experiment. I love the point that it's sometimes things that are not currently technologically feasible yet, but we can do this in the model and that then guides experiment, it guides theory, right? And there's this whole cycle of going back and forth. And one of the things that we brought up earlier, we talked about earlier, I think is really important also to bring up is theories that turn out to be wrong are really useful. And I think it's really important to recognize that the process of theory is to drive new discovery. And so if you have a theory that pushes experiments in new directions and comes up with new discoveries, and that theory turns out to be wrong, that was still a very useful part of the scientific process. I think John Rinzel, who's here, and I'm paraphrasing, said something like, the point of a model is to break it. Yes. <laughs> I just want to point out that, in, <clears throat> that uh, at this stage of technological development, it uh, feels that we're at the verge of um, automatizing a lot of the task in neurobiology. Neurobiology has been a, uh, 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 a labor-intensive uh, discipline, right? It's still people doing patch clamping is one by one. And, but we're getting to, I mean, uh, sequencing is not, it's a robotized uh, uh, industry now. And maybe electrophysiology will get there. Uh, so we can start asking ourselves if the models that are uh, built, now we will have families of models, right? these examples in, in uh, dopamine and basal ganglia or the cortex, and then we can start asking, do they have something in common? Mm -hmm. do, can we build now maybe a super family? I don't know. It's, it can, we have a database that has been growing over the last, I don't remember, the model DB has been there for so many years. Is there a way to look at it and, and find correlations, things that are at the level of information, coding, or anything across all these models? Right and and are, are we can we get some 
fundamental or some shared principles independently where uh, the, or the, independent of the function or the neurons that are implementing this. So there, so Elaine, you're working on on bridging scales across the nervous system, and then there's also this bridging of scales across phylogeny, also. So there's a sort of this language also I find very confusing. And of course, there's hierarchies and heterarchies, and so there's this, all this. This I feel like a lot of this process. And I've been saying this again and again. Is that a lot of these workgroup type things are all about building the language that's going to be used by people to disambiguate and to really clarify the roadmaps and the kind of to-do lists and, and, and how to sort of align vocabularies and granularities amongst groups of people who work on disparate things with different mindsets. How do you do that <laughs> here? And is that posing the, the sort of the problem in, in, in the right terms? I think one important thing to recognize is that models and theories are really critical to bridge across those kinds of gaps that when you are that things like talking about different species and you know when you have different tasks with different animals or different experiments then it's really the theories and the models that do that bridging and that whenever anybody is doing that bridging including when experimentalists are thinking hard about their experiments what they're really doing underlying it is theory and modeling yeah, I, I totally agree uh, with this. And actually, we, we realized in the Human Brain Project that by putting together experimentalists that works on so many different scales, from the molecular, cellular, circuit, up to the, to, the, to the level of the entire brain, the mouse or the human, they don't, they do, they don't know it, what each other are doing. Right? And, and uh, we feel, because there is a lot of theory and a lot of modeling in this project, that, that it's our role, the theoreticians, to link these, these data and see, and be, because if you are recording MEG activity in the human, you're not necessarily aware of what the Allen Brain Institute is doing on the mouse and, and, and not even on the, on the human connectome sometimes. And so uh, uh, models have a chance to, to bridge, uh, exactly like you said, uh, between those. And I think uh, we discovered this, this actually by working with all these different people. I think there was a point today in the discussion about that, like once you have a model and then you put it out or some smaller or very compact theory, now there's enough data, a few fields in which you can check for coherence, right? If, if, it, if it is contradicting or not, these other models, and probably that's where efforts have to be made in terms of if we are going to draw a, mock, a roadmap of where things have to be actually funded is, is uh, to generate this kind of interchangeable parts of models and, and, and checking for sanity. Yeah, so and, and, and identify what is needed yeah. in, the, in one scale in order to explain the data in the scale above or, or, or linked with the Right, and paraphrasing the, the example and that Veronica said, once exactly. you start, and you sit down and then you describe the problem, you yeah. will and, and, and I think to do this is very useful to put mm -hmm. all these people together, and it's mm -hmm. rare. Mm -hmm. uh, from what I've seen at the Brain Initiative, we were invited in the HBP uh, in the last uh, PI conference of the Brain Initiative in Bethesda, mm -hmm. and uh, I realized that many, most of the projects in the Brain Initiative are extremely focused on one scale, if you want yeah. one single yeah, yeah, scale, that's, that's what uh, which is good because it's uh, it's good to be focused. You mm -hmm. really can do work. Right, but uh, but uh, there is always the problem is that all these projects don't talk to each other, mm -hmm. 
and they're not necessarily aware of what the, each others are doing. Uh, and I think it's, uh, the, there should be more uh, linking between skills in the sense that uh, like a program for, for allowing researchers from different perspectives, different uh, size of uh, uh, spatial or temporal scale to talk to each other and be inside the same project. It's very useful. For theoreticians yeah. and for yeah, I feel like even, yeah, it's true, we have to allow them to talk, but then I think there are two main barriers that in, in some ways is, the first one is the language, that then we get, when we get our focus like that, we don't realize how um, re reduced our language becomes, and it's like, you know, you don't have an understanding word of what the other person is saying. Uh, but the other thing is that somehow it seems like it requires different states or ways of thinking. And I wonder if it requires different personalities. I don't know. Now I'm just going a little bit off. <laughs> but I do, because I do notice that I can go myself into the, in these two different modes. Like I can, be, you know, in order to tackle a very specific problem and answer a more mechanistic question, I, re I need to get really submerged in the world. But it is then very hard to kind of step out and, 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 and in order to connect these to other things, you really need to step out. And you you're, do it in part because you are forced, you know, or encouraged to do it. But I think in some ways it's more than just getting these people together. You can't just encourage them right. getting so together because if they don't understand each other, that thing won't Well, I mean, this is like an example of this list. This, this, this panel, I mean, for of the people in this panel do experiments in their labs, right? And we're talking about theory, and we need that. And, but I want to go to the point of, this is not the objective of the, of the workshop, but it's the training model, right? The training model of, of, we have, for a lot of years, what we have done is to attract physicists, right? And then we have a group of neuroscientists. We have two groups of neuroscientists. neuroscientists like, we, we bring uh, engineers and physicists and we train them in, com in, uh, in uh, theoretical or uh, computational neuroscience. And then we have the, the biological background. And then in, in that sense, I think we need the biological education, right? This understanding of ecology, of, 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 of evolution in how we build models, right? And I think we have to stop having like theoretical neuroscience and, or, or data science in, in neuroscience to separate uh, tracks and, and the, the, the training of, of the future uh, uh, researchers, it has to be uh, merged. It has to be a more natural merge. I have to say, I just want to address something that Veronica brought up earlier, but I want to address what you just said, yeah. which is, I think that was much, much more true 25 years yeah. ago. And that actually there is a very large cadre of really talented graduate students, in fact, who are trained in computational, theoretical, and experimental neuroscience. In fact, one of the things I've found now is that most of the major neuroscience programs in the country have a theoretical neuroscience at minimal core class. Mm -hmm. right? So when I first got to Minnesota, I'm not sure I should say this in public, but I will, uh, I actually suggested we should have a computational class, and I was shut down. Mm. That was about more than 15 years ago. Um, but we now have a quantitative neuroscience class that contains theory and analysis and computational components. And in fact, that was forced in by many of the same people who said they didn't want it 10 or 15 years ago. I think that this is changing. I think that there is, in fact, 
a next generation being trained on that. But I want to address something that, that Veronica said earlier, which I think is really, really interesting about crossing these barriers. And one is that um, a lot of what we see in these different fields is every experiment has a limitation. There's only so many things you can do if you've got human subjects versus if you've got rat subjects versus if you've got monkey subjects. And what, what I find a lot of is that each field has decided this subset of things I'm going to care about and that subset of things I'm not because, not because it's not important, but because I can't handle that. I can't deal with that. I don't have control of that. And so when you start to bring these groups together, there has to be an acknowledgement of, yes, I recognize that you're doing really good quality work even though you're not controlling the things I'm controlling. And I'm doing really good quality work even though I'm not controlling the things you're controlling. And that it's actually a synthesis rather than a conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's really important to recognize, we've been doing a lot of cross-species work at Minnesota now, um, and there's some really exciting things, but it takes years to actually have this process. This is not a sit down and talk about it once thing. It's actually a whole process whereby we go back and forth and back and forth and shared students, students who are trained in both components actually sitting next to each other and arguing and talking. It's a whole, it takes time. And I think there needs to be an appreciation in the funding agencies that these kinds of projects are not, we're just going to take these two people and throw them together, that we're actually going to have a, a five-year timeline to actually get the first paper out. Right. No, one little key thing I, I was thinking as I was saying how we can create this, that in some ways maybe you kind of did a little bit of this very effectively here. So you put people with very diverse backgrounds and expertise and knowledge, and you told us, don't talk about science. Don't talk about your data. And I have to tell you, this like was very disconcerting to me. I was like, <laughs> what do you mean? What am I supposed to talk about? And I never thought I would have so much to say. But <laughs> I can shut up now. No, but it is no, amazing right. what happens when you, <laughs> <laughs> when you tell people. When you tell people. We don't want to hear your little detailed data. We want to hear more your ideas. And I think maybe, uh, you know, I, I think I believe that my ideas are all based on those little detailed data. But I only I can do that when I'm forced to not speak about it. Yeah, we, so we maybe need to that's challenge one way. I want to hear from Tatiana. Yeah. Um, on which of these aspects? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of interested in, and I'm going to be a little uh, controversial maybe, but uh, are you guys redefining what theory is? No. What about the people that want to just continue to do local, uh, you know, local systems? And does theory now, are we trying to say that everybody has to bridge scales and bridge phylogeny? And no, then, no, no, no. we just call, Science should be Is free. this a point of divergence? No. Where theory, where we're defining different no. types of No, we are theory? trying to identify, no. sorry, I'm going to interrupt for a second, but, uh, but we are, because it's a conceptual issue about the workshop. We are, we are trying to identify frameworks or ideas, we are trying to make them independent of the current experimental constraints and the current technological constraints. We are trying to produce these ideas, but we are, not trying, we are not trying to dictate. No, but what I'm wondering if it's maybe a good idea to... No, no it's not. It's not different. different. This is not different from the current standard definition of theory. It really isn't. The current so, standard definition of theory is exactly what we're proposing. Yeah. It's but I guess, yeah, I would maybe add yeah, to this. Please. So there is also additional. So the theory which was described so far 
was a set of ideas about how things work, which we can instantiate as models and test and experiment. But I think there is also a different role of theory now, especially when the data collection becomes so advanced and so um, um, huge the theory can actually also guide data collection in a like and we try to make inferences based on this data right but uh, if you record 1000 neurons and you analyze it in an interesting way you always find something is it meaningful did i record many neurons we also noted noted this earlier in the morning that to make a perfect model, perfect theory, I would like to know every state of every molecule in my whole network. Is it true? It turns out there is more work recently showing that maybe it's not true. And if you record 100 neurons, if you drop 50 of those, the type of inference you make is still the same inference. So maybe not all information is required, but what information is required? So theory can also guide what kind of data do we need to collect? From how many neurons do we, do we need to record? Uh, at what level of resolution do we care about resolution of single spike times? Or should we rather sacrifice and record from more neurons at a coarser temporal scale? These notions are not worked out perfectly. We don't know which scale matters. Is it temporal scale, special scale? And building theories of how brain functions can help even guide the data collection and gear right. like which technologies need to be developed. I agree. Absolutely. Okay, super. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Okay, so that concludes episode one of Future Frameworks in Theoretical Neuroscience. Stay tuned for episode two, in which Fidel and Horacio recap the outcomes of the discussion. This is a Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.